Let's open in prayer. Our Father in heaven, God, we are so grateful for your mercy toward us. As we even just come to a time of the year when we reflect on Christ's incarnation, that he came to this world as a as a baby to take on human flesh and to live among us, to redeem humanity, to, to show us the path to the Father, and even to give us an example for how to live. And even as we remember that he worked and in a sense, he showed us how to be a true human, how to honor you and live a life that is perfectly submitted to you. And we pray that you'd help us to um, shape our thinking more and more after what is true, after after the gospel and the truths of the gospel and how they pertain to our role in this world as as workers. We pray that even this morning you'd help us in that endeavor and that you'd open our minds to understand your word and that your Holy Spirit would help us to apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you are joining us for the first time. This is our class on work and vocations. Just to give you a brief overview of where we've been and where we are now, we began dealing with the question of what is work? Why do we want to work? What is what is the design of work? Uh, we looked primarily at the beginning of the Bible there, Genesis 1 and 2, seeing how God himself is a worker, how he made us to be workers, how that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, and that it's a way that we um, not only we image Him, but then we we care for the world, we cultivate it, and then we serve one another. And that's really at, at the it's integral to what it means to be human, to function in the world in that way. But Genesis three, in a sense, changed everything. It didn't take. It, we're still made in the image of God. We, there's still goodness that we see in the world around us, even in even in sinful people. And but everything now is corrupted, including our work. And so not only the the places we work, the institutions that we work in, the societies that we work in, the people that we work with, and then our own selves. Everything has been corrupted by sin. So that leads to work becoming at times fruitless, pointless. You you know you're on the treadmill. And you're not getting anywhere, it feels like at times. Or um, you do really well and then something, some turn of events occurs and it's all for naught. At least it feels that way. Um, as well as there's an inward-lookingness to our work because of sin, where we're no longer looking to honor God and serve others, but instead looking to serve ourselves, to make, make a name for ourselves. That's what we saw last week. So, starting this week, we're going to look for the next four weeks at how the gospel reshapes our understanding of work. So, today we're going to look at, um, this is a title I'm getting from Tim Keller's book, A New Story for Work. But by that, what we're going to see is that the storyline of the Bible is a rich narrative that gives us better answers to the big questions of life, and when we locate our work and our role in society and our function as humans in the, in that storyline, it really it provides a coherent worldview that we can live in the world, even in the fallenness of the world. And then next two weeks, we're going to look at a new compass for work. By that, I mean we're going to think about some of the ethical implications of the gospel for how we function in the workplace, uh, how we exercise faith and love, and how we bear the cross. And we're going to think about how the gospel shapes and informs that aspect of our work in the workplace. And then and 
December 18th, the week before Christmas, we're going to consider the new power for work, and specifically how the gospel, the truths about justification by faith, shape our identity and our purpose and our rest in work. As well, starting next week, um, we're going to have opportunities throughout, uh, at the end of each class, until I think the rest of the, until the end, until February 5th, we're going to have a, um, a dialogue towards the end of the class with someone, another one of you all from just to hear what, um, how these ideas uh, have affected you and what it's like in your workplace. So diving in today then, the first week of how the gospel affects our workplace. What is the gospel? <laughs> how would you, do, how would you um, explain the gospel? The good work of Christ redeeming faith in Him. The good work of Christ redeeming those who have faith in Him? Yeah. All right, what else? Anyone want to add to that or um, hopefully not take away from that, but um, add to that? What is the gospel? Good news. Good news, yeah. That's at the core, what it, the, word, the literal translation of the word, it's just a, a good, good news, good me- a proclamation of good news. Um, of course, it's, you know, it's good news that the U.S. didn't lose to England, and good news, you know, other, there's other things that are good news, so it's good news with a specific content, right? <laughs> good news of the salvation, right. Um, and so there's obviously there's a content that has to be, it's not just any good news, it's a, it's a good news um, of salvation. And some of you have heard this, seen this, maybe this four-part explanation before. Uh, I've found this really helpful over the years. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you just to think of these kind of four categories of what is really included in this good news, this message of good news. You have to understand something. Before you can even understand the good news, you have to understand something of who God is, how He's the Creator who made all things. He's perfect. He's holy. He's just. He's, he's the source of all that is good in the world, of life itself. Um, and then who He made, who we are, who man is, that we are God's creatures and made in His image. And yet we have fallen into sin, and uh, we have rebelled against God, and the just penalty for that is death. Both physical death, eternal death, spiritual death, all of that is the just penalty for sin. That's when the good news begins to make sense, because then we see how Christ redeemed us from the curse of sin, and brought us uh, life and liberty, freedom to all those who have faith in Him. Uh, and that faith is really the response of what, what it when we hear this message of good news, it's a requirement that we, we come to it in faith. You know, all of that you could summarize, Second Corinthians 5.21, you see all that. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what I would say is the very heart of the gospel, that this, the substitutionary atonement, where God made Jesus, who knew no sin, lived a sinless life, he made him to be sin, that is, he imputed our sin to Christ, so that in Christ, those who are in Him, those who are united to Him in faith, would actually become righteous, would be, have that righteous, the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And that double imputation, that's really the heart of the gospel. Now, if you've been at Cow Creek for many years, like I think most, most of you have, you know, that's nothing, you've heard that many times. So, let me ask, is there anything more that can, we can say about the gospel? Or, when we say, what is the gospel, um, is this... Is there more to, more to be said than what I've just said? This basic message of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Let me put it this way. Why didn't we... The New Testament... Does the New Testament address more than what I've, what I've just described? Yes. Yes. 
And does that mean that we need to go beyond the gospel to new territories, more than the gospel? Or where I'm going at is the gospel itself, we don't, we don't go beyond it, but we go deeper into it. There's much more that must be said about the gospel. I mean, you know, someone said something to this effect, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember who exactly said it, but you know, in a sense the gospel is shallow enough that a child can wade in it and not drown. Um, any, anyone can, any of our children can understand this basic message of the gospel, but it's deep enough that we can swim in it all our, all our years and never plumb the depths. There's, there's depths of riches in the gospel that are more than just the basic message of Jesus died for your sins and so repent and believe in him. Sometimes we think, you know, we talk about living a gospel-centered life and you can almost think, well, I just repeat that basic message over and over again. And you kind of, uh, there's more to be said. To, there's depths and riches in the gospel beyond just the basic message. Not that you go beyond it, but that you go deeper into it. And that we, we see that even in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. We hear this basic, you know, this uh, very rich statement of the gospel, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And something to think about is, I mean, the coming ages of eternity, where we're with God, we are going to be looking into the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. So, I mean, in one sense, yes, you can understand the truths of the gospel now. But in another sense, there's a richness and a depth that is immeasurable, that we can't fully fathom, and we're going to continue growing in our understanding of for eternity. It's in Ephesians 3, 8, he says, he calls them the, that he's, he said he's an apostle to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. If you think about, I mean, that word unsearchable kind of... I mean, the, the literal idea of it is that you cannot get to the end of it. You, you search, you, get, you study it more, you get deeper into it, and you find there's still more. It's like a, this vast country that you just explore, and you find there's greater depths and greater riches in it. You know, remember what Paul said in Romans 11? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable are His ways. You know, in that sense, we could think of it like a, like a diamond, that you know you can see and you can appreciate, but if you turn it, you see it in new ways. You, you study it. There's there's more beauty and more riches and more depth to the gospel than just the basic message that you, anyone can understand. That if you repent of your sins, you will be forgiven in Christ. Does that make sense? Um, what are some? Can you think of some other ways that the New Testament talks about the gospel? I know it's it's early. Put on your thinking caps. If you've been reading through the New Testament, what are some, you think of some other ways that the New Testament talks about it? Not just it is a message that you must believe. That is the primary way that it talks about it. It's a message of good news that you must believe. But as we think about how it applies to our life in the workplace, we're going to see that it, there's more there's more depths and nuances to the gospel and how it applies to us than just simply you know, believe this message and then, you know, go tell your coworkers this message. It is that, it, we do need to hear that, and we are going to talk about evangelism, but there's more to it than just that. So how else does the New Testament speak about the gospel? When you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes into you and changes you. Yeah. That's, you become a new person. That's right. Uh, you're saved not by your works, but for your works. That's right. So the gospel, it 
not only it's not just information you believe, a message you believe, but then it comes into your life, it changes your life, and the Holy Spirit indwells you and transforms you. That's, I mean, that's, that's a huge, that has huge implications for our, our life in the world and work. Anything else? You're walking through life and looking at, looking at life through the lens of the gospel. The incredible love of God. Yeah. The way we see people. Yeah. Did you read ahead? Yeah, some books. We're going to talk about that later. How the gospel really is like a lens through which you see the whole world. How it's it changes in a sense. It changes everything for us. Um, it it redeems everything and, and gives us a new perspective on everything. Remember what Paul said about the gospel in Romans one sixteen. This is kind of going along with what Beverly said, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's when Paul said he's not ashamed of it. So the gospel is information, but it's information that has power to bring us to faith and then power to transform us. And similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, we preach Christ crucified, uh, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this message, Christ crucified, the, the message of the gospel, it is the, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the gospel is, it displays God's power and his wisdom. And remember what Paul said in Philippians 1, talking to the church, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So as Beverly was saying, the, the gospel, it it comes with it a, a, way, of, a way of life that um, there's ethical implications of the gospel. There's other places where Paul says that unbelievers, they don't obey the gospel. The gospel is actually comes brings along with it um, a, a whole new life. Not that you're saved by your works, but as, as Ephesians 2 says, you're saved for good works. So when we talk about we talk about the gospel, we, we, do, we do need to remember, and we can never assume the basic message of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that we're saved by faith alone. But we do need to see that it goes deeper than just those facts. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, you know, you could be tempted to think, well, he just is repeating this basic message of Jesus being crucified for them over and over again. What else is included in the letter to the Corinthians that would for Paul, fits under the category of Christ and Him crucified. You know, there's all kinds of stuff in there. It's like, how do you live with your unbelieving spouse? And how do you deal with sin in the church? And um, the resurrection, all these, there's all, spiritual gifts. There's, there's a lot of implications of the gospel that he unpacks throughout, throughout the letter. Remember he said in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, on the one hand, we, can, we do need to be aware of the tendency to drift away from the Gospel. That we see that all through society. I mean, of you know, someone saying this is a really an implication of the Gospel and then replacing, making whatever it is, your hobby horse issue, your central message. That is a danger that we must be aware of. We've seen that. Throughout society, you see it today happening in sectors of the church. But I would, I would suggest also that we should not oversimplify or flatten out the gospel to think that we know it completely. We can know it truly, but there's more to it that we don't yet fully understand. Those are measurable riches that we will learn about for coming ages. You know, if, um, if all you need to know was Jesus died for you, so pray this prayer and wait until he comes back to take you to heaven, then... You know, we wouldn't need a New Testament 
that addresses such all these issues of, of government and family and social relationships and your work. So the gospel, it, it transforms all of those things. And you see that even in 1 Corinthians 15, where he, Paul says, you know, this is the message of first importance. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then later in that chapter, he just starts unpacking what, it, what does it mean that Christ is raised from the dead. And the implications of the resurrection are staggering. You know, in one sense, it's a message of personal salvation for us. There is, that is part of it, that we are, we are saved by faith in Christ. As he says in verse 22, what I've underlined there, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the mes- Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection, of our salvation. But it, it's more than just a, a story of personal salvation. If you go on and you see... 23, he says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he, that is God, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. No, that's Christ. When, he, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then down at the end, he looks forward to that time at the end of history when all things are subjected to him. Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That's really where history is going. And that's not like Paul, this is like a different message than the gospel. This is just what, what the gospel has secured. It hasn't just secured our resurrection, but it's also enthroned Christ as the ultimate authority over Overall, remember what he said in Matthew 28, right after he was resurrected. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he says all of this, he's, history is going to this point where God may be all in all. Now that's, I don't know if I even understand that phrase. That's, that's an enigmatic statement. I, it's, it's hard. I'm sure there's people that understand it better than me. But it reminded me of what Paul said in Romans 11, that from him and through him and to him are all things. Really, the whole world is going towards this end where God receives the glory and praise for everything. So it includes our personal salvation, but the gospel includes much more than just that. Which is what you see like even in Ephesians 1. You know, I've underlined, I won't read the whole thing for the sake of time, but you know, in Ephesians 1, you see all of the, the spiritual blessings that are, that are personal for us, that we've been chosen in Him. We've been predestined for adoption to Himself as sons. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. So those are all personal spiritual blessings that we receive because we're united to Christ by faith. But we see where this is all going in verses 9 and 10, where it says that He's made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And that's kind of a, that's a difficult concept to get through our heads as well. But, you know, we saw in Genesis that creation itself has been, in a sense, fractured. Creation was cursed. You know, the land, the, the world was cursed because of sin. Um, there's been disharmony between God and man, between man and man, between man and the earth. It's pr- instead of producing as it should, it's producing thorns and thistles. And so what I think he's looking forward to is, he's saying that in Christ, God has a plan to unite all things, to bring them all together and to make all things right again. Um, it includes our personal salvation, but it's bigger than just that. Which I think is what you see in Colossians 1 as well, where very similar type language. You see both that we've been reconciled 
to Christ um, through his body of flesh by his death. That's the part that's underlined in verse 22. But in verse 20, he says that through Christ, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Does that make sense? Do you guys have any, any questions on that? How the gospel... I know I grew up, maybe some of you have grown up the same way, but um, just hearing that the gospel, you know, the basic message of the gospel, which is true, and we don't want to, I don't want to under, I don't want to say that's um, necessarily wrong. It is, it's it's 100% correct that, you know, Jesus died for your sins, and if you have faith in him, you will be saved from your sin. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's more to it than just, you know, your personal salvation. Does that make sense? Any questions on it? I see heads nodding. Uh, and that's partly what we're going to look at today is how this story, you know, Tim Keller puts it this way. If you, I don't know if you can read that. Maybe in the back if you have good eyesight. Um, the gospel is the true story that God made a good world that was marred by sin and evil, but through Jesus Christ, he redeemed it at infinite cost to himself. So that someday he will return to renew all creation, end all suffering and death, and restore absolute peace, justice, and joy in the world forever. The vast implications of this gospel worldview about the character of God, the goodness of the material creation, the value of the human person, the fallenness of all people and all things, the primacy of love and grace, the importance of justice and truth, the hope of redemption, affect everything, and especially our work. So in this first week, as we think about more specifically the gospel's implications for our work, I want to just... I want to. You see here the storyline of Scripture really summarized. You know, it's a, it's a story that where God made a good world. There's creation. It was marred by sin and evil. There's the fall, and then through Jesus Christ, He redeemed it at infinite cost to Himself. There's redemption, and that someday He will return to renew all creation. So new creation. There's this narrative structure to Scripture. You know, the Bible didn't come to us in just a theological text where you know you read the propositions of the gospel. You're a sinner, Jesus died for you know, it didn't come that way. It came in a story. You know, that this is our God is a he wrote a narrative. This drama of redemption plays out in a historical narrative. And then as as we begin to understand that's really how history is structured, it begins to reshape our our thinking about ourselves, others, our work, our role in the world. So uh, I'm going to, if we put this as just a series of questions, you know, that we're all, everyone is functioning with some sort of answers to these questions, whether they've thought them through or whether they'd articulate them in these ways, you know, you all, your coworkers, your boss, uh, everyone in a sense has uh, some sort of answer to these questions. The first one being, how are things supposed to be? Or, you know, what is the good life? What does it look like for humans to flourish? What does it look like? What is it? What do we want in this world? You know, in the gospel, we see that the response to that is that God made a good world. He placed humans in it to govern and care for it in loving relationship with him. That's true. That's what creation was meant to be. That's what we're longing for it to be. But you get to the second question, well, what's wrong with the world? You know, everyone senses there's something wrong with the world. No one's really saying that everything's just the way it should be. You know, if you turn on the news, you'll see that pretty quickly. Um... In the gospel, we say that man sinned against God and plunged the whole world under a curse and separation from God. And then third is that how to fix the world. And, you know, the gospel responds that Christ redeems humanity and creation from the curse by becoming a curse through his sacrificial death on the cross. We're going to think just for a few minutes about, and I'd like to encourage you to think about it for your own work, but I'm going to share some examples 
of different ways that we answer these questions in our work. One thing I would, you can notice here is that the gospel, it speaks to both our worth and value as, as, as humans that were made in the image of God, but also our unworthiness and our sin. We see both of those in, in the biblical worldview, that all of us universally were made in the image of God, and then universally were fallen, were sinful. All other worldviews, they're going to you know, deal with, they're going to somehow misplace the answers to these questions. And as a result, they're going to live lives differently. They're going to have different values and priorities and, and goals. But this can be kind of difficult to, I don't know, get underneath. I mean, I don't know if you can, before I share some of my own examples, maybe think about that for a second in your workplace. Um, you know, there, this may not, people aren't just necessarily going to tell you that. This is just going to be kind of the, the, um, the water they swim in, so to speak. They're going to have a story that they're kind of, that's shaping how they view the world. There's going to be protagonists in that story. People, the good guys, who are trying to fix things and make things better. And usually, those good guys, you're actually, you're on the good team, right? Um, you know, part of the, the protagonists are your people, or people who are doing what you are doing, or agreeing with your goals. And there's going to be antagonists, those people or things that are standing in your way, things that are preventing this good from being achieved. Uh, and then along the way, you're going to identify, sometimes Sometimes these are unique to your profession, but then there's also, these, there's also things that just, you know, they, they are common to all people. But there may be in your profession some unique temptations, idols, hopes, and fears. So can anyone, does anyone feel like sharing or thinking? I mean, are there anything that you think of in your own profession or your workplace that, where you can identify some of these things, a, a storyline that shapes the culture of your field of work? Finding security in retirement system. All right. Yeah. Finding security in retirement. Anything else? Raymond? Um, one of the things that I'm having to look real hard at in the, as I'm approaching a career in the fire service is um, there's a lot of attachment to the notion that you know we're the heroes and we're the ones that are going to save the day and we're the salvation that's coming and right. else is coming. We're going to be the ones that, you know, and uh, a lot of fire folk take a lot of pride in that. And I don't think that that's entirely, right. you know, because it is, it's a challenging deal, but uh, but I can't, I, I need to know not to um, let that become my idol. Right. Yeah, and you touched on something important there that I'm going to, as we go through the and think about these, and as you think about your own profession or your own work, uh, whether that's in the home or outside the home, you know, there's likely going to be some truths that um, are good, some things that you can affirm about um, the work that you do that are that's made in the image of God that um, you can recognize as good. We, we're going to talk about God's common grace that you know whether you're a believer or not, you know a good firefighter. Um, who comes in and rescues you from a fire or puts out the fire. I mean, he's doing good work. He's made in the image of God. Um, and that is that is a good thing. Um, there's common grace. You don't have to be a Christian firefighter to put out a fire. Um, so there's common grace in that. But there is a tendency, perhaps unique in, the, in firefighting, but... Uh, to others as well, maybe especially to those who are in like helping professions. If you're a doctor, a nurse, you know, you're spending your life giving to other people, 
sacrificing for other people to think, well, you know, we are the ones who are really, we're the saviors of these people. We're, we're helping them. We're, we're giving ourselves for them. And you can, you can put yourself as the protagonist. And then the antagonist maybe are those people who don't really realize, you know, they're ungrateful for your help and they don't realize how hard you have to work and what your life is like. And, um, you know, those are the, the antagonists and you're, you're the good guys and, you know, they're the bad guys. There's certain worldviews like that that will um, shape how you view your work. Anyone else think of any other struggles like that? Or Janelle? Um, I think in, in the area where I work, um, all of the people I work with are really nice people and they all would say they're Christians, but their life doesn't portray that in any other way other than they would say that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a commitment to church or to um, the things of, of the gospel, the things of of the Lord, really. Yeah. You know? um, it's it's more just a, a lip service. Um, and so I feel like they're more of an antagonist that's actually not helping them to understand their true need for, for yeah. the gospel and for, for more than just a a belief that oh yeah I'm, I'm okay now right and it doesn't uh, show the non-believers what a Christian really should be like on mm-hmm. mm-hmm. more representation at best yeah based on a shallow faith right yeah and you know remember the Pharisee um, Jesus told the, the parable to him he said um, I think it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and Jesus said he told them told this parable to those who wanted to justify themselves. Really, that temptation to justify ourselves, to paint ourselves as the, the heroes, the, the ones who are the good guys in the story, that's common to all of us, and it's going to take on different forms. But um, as we start to understand, I mean, the gospel then speaks into that. As, and a lot of times we don't necessarily understand those questions. You have to think about them for some time. And sometimes you have to be in the profession for a while to actually understand what's shaping the worldview. But oftentimes when you really get down to it, those worldviews are going to blame the problems in the world on things besides sin. And then they're going to offer solutions to those things, uh, those problems, in solutions besides God. And this is, uh, Tim Keller says that uh, as we think about these questions of worldview, we're to think of the gospel as a set of glasses through which you look at everything else in the world. Uh, in a sense, it reshapes how you think about about everything. In some ways, this is more obvious. Like there may be ob- areas where worldview conflict is very clear, and on your profession, there be other ways where it's deceptive and it kind of gets under your radar, and you don't even necessarily realize um, how it's affecting you. But one thing that you know, one rubric here that I've seen within my work, you know, I'm, I work in an engineering firm. I work with architects, contractors, um, you know. A variety of owners and you know schools and hospitals, those kinds of things. And yeah, but in a sense, this what I've seen is this is common even just throughout business in general. But um, how are things supposed to be? What is the good life? The goal in life, the goal in your work, is really just to and often you know is to maximize your profits within legal limits while treating others fairly. If you can do things, you can treat people well. You know you act in your own self interest, but you don't you don't you're not you're not breaking any laws. You're not uh, you're being kind to others, then if you maximizing your profits really, for many people, that is their be-all, end-all. That is the goal of business. So what is wrong with the world? Well, then whenever anything happens or any 
forces in play come, in, uh, come into your life that cause you to lose profits or, um, you know, those people become the bad guys, the antagonists in the story. In my, in my world, I see this frequently where engineers will butt heads with either architects or contractors in an adversarial way because there's limited dollars to go around and somebody's made a mistake and now somebody's got to pay for it and you know it better not be the engineer it's we got to find a way to pin the blame on the other guy it was the architect's fault it was the contractor's fault it was somebody's fault it wasn't my fault and so the way that you and many engineers then will look at the world in a way that how can i use my authority my influence to really maximize my profits to protect my own interests at the expense of others so is there anything good that can be said if you were in a society, in a wor- workplace that thinks about world, the world that way? Is there anything good? Is there any common grace in this type of worldview? Perhaps the uh, simplest would be uh, the common grace that things don't go as bad as they could. Yeah, they don't go as bad as they could. And in a sense... You know, maximizing profits, making money is not necessarily a bad thing. That, that, I mean, when it comes to being you know, rewarded for your labors, when you're working productively, creatively, maximizing profits isn't necessarily a bad thing. But the whole thing goes wrong because when you don't understand sin for, as really the source of the problem. And you don't need, you know, in this case, when you say what is wrong with the world, um, you know, remember our tendency is going to be to find people out there where the problem is. And it's not going to be me. It's not going to be my self-interest that's the problem. It's going to be those other people who are causing the problem. And not that the goal itself of making money um, is, not necessar- is not necessarily sinful, but when it's elevated to the main purpose, and when you misunderstand the nature of sin and grace, then it all goes wrong. Here's another one that I see in my industry. And this is gets into maybe some political issues, but um, how are things supposed to be? Well, it's a good world, and we are to care for it and preserve the environment for future generations. So what's wrong with the world? Well, it's all those humans who hurt the environment through wasting energy, construction waste, pollution, etc., etc. And then how do we fix the world? Well, we make stricter co- energy codes, we, make, we require more renewable energy, we require a commitment to sustainable business practices. I deal with this all the time in my workplace because there's new codes coming out every three years and they're always more strict. They're always requiring more and more energy efficiency and all that. Um, so what is good? Where's the common grace in this where we can see actually some good even in this worldview? We are called to care for the world that God's given us to live on. Yeah. Yeah. So we can say yes and amen. We want to preserve... <laughs> And care for the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, where does it go wrong? What's what's the what is where what's the missing components? What do they misidentify, misdiagnose in this worldview? Well, the world's still going to fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> Sinful. It's corrupt. It's there's there is right. no hope. So it's but, sinful. It's corrupt. That's and that's what what I want you to see here is that you know there's. When they say what's wrong with the world, they're taking a certain part of the world that is, you know, wasteful corporations or people that are uninformed or, you know, those people out there, and they're saying they're the problem. They're not identifying sin as the problem, where sin is what is through and through all of us, every institution, every workplace, every human heart is infected with sin. So they're misdiagnosing the problem, 
And therefore, they're coming up with the wrong solution. If the problem really is out there, those people, those corporations that pollute the rivers, and which is a bad thing, but if, that, if that's the problem, then the solution is going to be, well, let's regulate them and make them stop doing that. You see, so if you misdiagnose the problem, if you don't identify the problem as sin that affects everyone, then you're going to come up with solutions that are not um, the real solutions. But this goes even, you know, sometimes I said these are obvious. This maybe is... Uh, at least in our world, in our milieu, uh, conservative, right in California, this might be uh, a more obvious uh, worldview that's in conflict with biblical, the biblical worldview. Um, how about this one? How are things supposed to be? What is the good life? Well, they're supposed to, we're supposed to have a just society, a free society, where people who do wrong things are punished, and those who do right things are able to live in freedom. So what's wrong with the world? Well, it's first of all, it's the people who mess up society. They're on, you know, drugs, alcohol, abuse, all, you know, all those wrong things. They mess up society, and then it's the corrupt politicians who keep them on the streets, who who don't pass laws to or rescind laws that would have kept them in, in jail. So how do we fix the world? Well, we get the corrupt politicians out of office, and then we lock up all the bad people. <laughs> so simple. <laughs> So, what's true in that worldview? I mean, what's, what's, where's the common grace that even in this, there is truth? Well, that wrong behavior should be rewarded with the correct consequences. Right. Yep. That is true. There are corrupt politicians. Yep. <laughs> I think part of that is the definition of what the bad people are is kind of corrupt also. Right. Yeah, right. Again, we're saying the, bad, the, the problem is those people out there who do bad things, whether it's the corrupt politicians or you know, the people on the streets who are making bad life choices. They're the problem, but you know, we're the good guys. We're the ones who are trying to make things right and fair and free for everyone. So you know, we're going to end up with a wrong solution. We're going to forget that those corrupt politicians are actually humans like you and I. You know, some of you may have read Lord of the Flies many years ago. I read it in school. You know, the, this band of young boys that get shipwrecked on an island and they have to figure out how to live together and so they, you know, figure out how to kill animals and feed themselves and build shelters and all that. And they kind of develop a little hierarchy and some guys are in charge and then, but pretty soon they're fighting because they can't agree who's in charge and then they're, before long they're killing you know trying to kill each other i can't remember how it all ends but i think there might even be like human sacrifice if i'm remembering right but it's a story it's just a narrative of how you know there isn't it's not like there's people who are born as corrupt politicians who just live their whole lives and then they become corrupt politicians then there's us the good guys who we're not that way you know it's the sin is if sin is really the problem and it's infected all of our hearts then we're all part of the problem and we all need the same solution we need the grace of god Lord of the Flies is the English translation of the word Beelzebub. Yeah, there you go. Lord of the Flies, English translation of, of Beelzebub. I didn't know that. All right, so it can be difficult and it can take time to think through those questions. But as you're in the workplace, you're thinking about these things, um, I'd encourage you to think about that. I mean, that's one of the ways the gospel um, speaks into our lives in the workplace. Is we try to, as we understand... You know the biblical answers to these questions. We can understand and 
how the gospel doesn't just, it's not just a simple, it is a message, Jesus died for your sins, repent and believe the gospel. But it also changes how you view the world and uh, provides different answers, more complete answers, actual true answers to these questions. All these other answers, you know, if you actually get to fixing the world the way that these other worldviews, and you could just continue to give example after example, if you actually get to that solution, it's not going to actually solve the problem. The, you know, the, you're going to get the new politicians in office, they're going to be corrupt as well. It's, uh, you're going to make the stricter codes, and, and then you're going to put power people in place who have the power to control the environment, and they're going to use that power abusively as well. So um, the gospel provides unique answers to these questions. One thing that Tim Keller points out that I think you know, it's, it's, we're, we especially need to be aware of as Christians uh, if we've grown up in the church, if you've you know, checked all the right boxes in that sense, you're keeping all the rules, you've understood the gospel, you're even starting to understand how the gospel is a right worldview, how it helps you, it helps you to think about the world more clearly and, and truly. You know, we can, there is a tendency then, it's really the same tendency of, of legalism or moralism to think of sin as something out there and to think of ourselves as those who are, are keeping the rules in a sense. So Tim Keller says, properly understood, the doctrine of sin means that believers are never as good as our true worldview should make us. And similarly, the doctrine of grace means that unbelievers are never as messed up as their false worldview should make them. You know, having the right worldview doesn't take away our sin. It doesn't mean that we're no longer part of the problem. And it doesn't take away our need for grace. And you know, for your unbelieving coworkers, your unbelieving bosses, even if they have the wrong worldview, they're still going to do good things at times. They're still going to act in good ways that you might even look to as an example and think, if only my Christian brothers and sisters would sacrifice like that person or live like that person or work like that person. I mean, we can, in a sense, make ourselves two camps of those in the church who have got it all figured out, who have the right worldview and uh, who are not... The, the source of the problem, and then those out there who are. It, sin and grace are more, what's the word? They run through the fabric of all of us. So we're all part of the problem, and the gospel is the solution to it all. But it's not as though we become saved, and then we're, we're on the good side, and everyone else is on the bad side. In other words, if you were to look at this, this rubric with that type of worldview and provide a moralistic answer to this, these questions. Well, you'd start with the, in the same place that God made a good world and he placed humans in it to govern and care for it in loving relationship with him. But then it, you can, we can have a tendency to, to think about what's wrong in the world and think it's just those non-Christians who live sinfully and shape the corrupt culture that dishonors God. That's really the problem. It's all those non-Christians out there. They live sinfully. They, they dishonor God. You can look at, at the corruption in the, in the media and think that's really the problem out there. And then if we can, that can lead us to the tendency to think, well, if we can just avoid that corrupting influence of human culture, if we can just distance ourselves from it, then we can remain pure and holy and be part of the solution. But this is really a twisted response. There's some truth here, but it's it's a twisted understanding of, of the gospel. It really minimizes sin. And makes it something that's external, something that we can control, something that, you know, if it's just external obedience, then we, you know, we can, we can keep the rules, we can check the boxes, and we can, we can control it, we can live holy lives. Whereas those people out there, they're really the, the source of the problem. 
you know when Paul said in Romans 6, I think, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Well, it kind of works the other way as well. If when sin becomes something little, something that's just external obedience, external actions, then grace is also something less as well. It's not, it's not as deep and as rich as it is when we understand that we ourselves are, are part of the problem. So when we think about common, this is what I want you to, to think about as, we, as common grace, as you'll see this in your workplace, and I think the gospel informs our understanding of common grace, that yes, all people are sinful, but God still uses them in the workplace. And we can't just say that our non-Christians are the problem and we are the solution. You see this in Romans 12, and this is a passage you probably, well, Romans 12 and 13. A lot of times we'll start right at Romans 13, verse 1, and we'll go from there. But you look at it in the context of what's going on right before it. And uh, Paul's exhorting the Christians in Romans 12 to repay no one evil for evil, but to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In verse 19, he says, Beloved, never, er- never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that's part, that part's pretty clear. Christians, don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God to actually avenge for you. He's, he's going to bring vengeance for you. Does someone want to read for me, starting at 13.1, just all the way through verse 5? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to God. If you have no fear of the one who is in authority, you can do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Alright, so, first Paul exhorts them to leave vengeance to the wrath of God. And then what does he tell them in chapter chapter 13? How is the wrath of God displayed in chapter 13? Through governing authorities. You see that in verse 4, he says, For he, that is the governing authority, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This he is, who is the, the he? You know, we think of governing authorities back in this, this day, first century believers in Rome. Who's the he? The emperor. The emperor and his you know, Roman uh, government. Certainly not Christian politicians who are exercising God's rule. This is, Paul's looking at um, corrupt politicians who are self-serving, um, but yet who are seeking to establish justice in society. I mean, Rome didn't want riots and fighting, and you know that's why they, Pilate was mostly concerned about just quelling this revolt uh, because he wanted to keep peace and order in society. So, despite Rome's idolatrous insistence on emperor worship and all of the evil things that we could say about them, yet they were still seeking to establish order. And 
justice, which allowed, for example, Paul to travel through that known world and, and share the gospel. And so Paul's looking at this Roman emperor who's an enemy of God, and he's also saying he's the servant of God. And that he's actually the one who is carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, not in an ultimate sense, that there will be, at the final day, God's wrath in eternal death on, upon sin, but in a temporal sense now, that God actually works through human authorities to carry out his wrath on the wrongdoers. So, I think we can understand underneath this, you can think about that in your workplace. You know, the most direct application of this would really be those in law enforcement, judicial applications that, you know, even those who are not believers are actually, when they're working to, uh, to keep justice and order in society, they're actually servants of God in that sense. They are carrying out His good purposes. But I think you can go underneath that and see how that applies even in other professions as well. That as we do good work that God has given us to do, and whether you're a believer or not, whether you're recognizing God's God and worshiping Him as you should, uh, you are actually a servant of God for the good of society. So, you add that, that wrinkle to the whole mix. And that, that's why you can see that it's not quite as simple as just saying, well, all those people out there are the problem. And, you know, common grace requires us to see there actually is good in every, you know, everyone has capacity for good, to be, in a sense, God's servant in the workplace. But everyone is fallen, in, us included, and we all need, need the gospel. Um, so we can praise God. When you see unbelievers who are working well, who are doing their work sacrificially, who are serving others and loving others, you know, we can praise God for that. That's actually His common grace evident in their lives. But we still remember that ultimately they need the gospel. That They're not going to be saved by their works. Any questions on that? Comments? Just, you know, um, I think we need to understand that the context of this is that it's when governments are actually doing good. Not when they're doing evil, right? So, yeah. So what we're what we're told is, do good. Don't be a wrongdoer, right? If we do wrong, we can expect God's wrath right. upon us through His agent, the government. So for a murderer, for a thief, uh, all those things. So it's it's saying when it says rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad, it's when the government is doing good and has good in mind. So, you know, Only when, to a certain extent, though, because even in history, God has used what we would describe as bad governments or even nations, countries, to inflict his judgment upon those that we say, well, maybe they're not so bad. So yes, in general, I would completely agree with you saying, but God still works through that to bring or render judgment upon other nations, even against Israel itself, where we used nations that we would say were good. Yeah, I think... Yeah, but that's not without God's wrath upon those nations as well. Correct. Doing that. So, what I'm saying is, you know, yeah, yeah, Hitler probably did some good things. He probably gave Christmas presents out to all his generals on Christmas, right? So he wasn't bereft of some goodness, but he was altogether evil in what he was doing too and so that's so we shouldn't lock up and gas the Jews because right because yeah yeah and terror I, for good <laughs> they're not a terror to good but they can't be a terror of evil right and so 
that's what the whole, you know, that's like Bonhoeffer and right. you know, Wilberforce or all those who did to see, they went against the government and said, no, that's wrong. Um, right. Obviously, I think we would all agree that if government opposes God, if they come out clearly requiring or mandating, enforcing policies that are contrary to Scripture, in that sense, there's a higher authority that, that trumps their authority. Um, it's a real contentious. So. But, and I, yeah, we're not going to say everything that could be said about it. But I think even, you know, in areas, there's going to be some gray area. But we do need to recognize, I think, that God has placed them there. That's Paul's point. God's the one who's put them there. No authority, you know, those, there's no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. So, yes, they can overstep that. And in that sense, and when that happens, we do have the right to, or the, the calling to oppose that. But, our default position should be actually to understand that authority has been instituted by God and that we're called to submit to that. And even, you know, he goes on in verse 6, he says, that, um, you know, those to whom taxes are due, you know, pay taxes to those to whom they're due. You know, I don't think the Christian were to say, well, my tax dollars are actually going to support the Roman centurions that are, you know, oppressing the Jewish people and then think, well, I'm not going to pay my taxes because it's going to bad purposes. I mean, Paul is telling them, you know, God's put them there your default position needs to be they're they're the servant of God for your good, which I, that's a that's a bigger topic than we can really fully address right now. But for the purpose of vocation, I think it's important to recognize that even non Christians are placed where they are and can actually be do good in the world as God's servants. So let me just share these few points of application, and then I, yeah, that's Tom Delvecchio almost taught a class on. Politics, which, you know, like we need a whole, you know, 15 weeks to answer that question. But thinking about applications for our lives, you know, we understand the full-orbed nature of the gospel. We will seek to understand how the, wor- the worldview that is based on the gospel reorients the priorities, problems, and solutions for human society. I mean, yes, it's true, Jesus died for your sins, and you need to repent of that, those sins. But then it, it goes on from there, it's deeper, the riches of the gospel reshape everything, the way you view the world. And we'll see then our own tendency to do this as well, that the narratives that limit the problem to some part of the world that is out there, those other people that are really the the problem, that those narratives really fail to accurately recognize the universality and deceptiveness of sin. And when we understand the doctrine of common grace, we can then appreciate the goodness in human work, including the good work done by non-Christians. Did you have a question, Ray? Or? Oh, I just wanted to say that when Jesus was in front of Pilate under false arrest, falsely accused, and all that other stuff, Pilate said, don't you know I have the authority to release you or condemn you? And he said, yeah, and God gave you that authority. Yeah. And Jesus submitted to it. Yeah. Any other questions, comments? Before we close? Alright, let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, God, we thank you for the riches of the Gospel, this treasure that we have, that in a sense, is unsearchable. That we, we can know it truly now, but not comprehensively. There is more reshaping of our thinking and our affections that needs to happen still as we meditate on the truths of the gospel and how they shape how we view the world and our place in it. And I pray that you'd help us to do that, to be more and more shaped after the image of Christ and, and the truths of the gospel in our work. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.